we need to think of the Book of Kells in a monastic context. Although it's beautiful and anybody can respond to that, a lot of its beauty is veiled. Um, it was not produced in a vacuum. It was produced in a whole tradition of monastic liturgical gospel books produced in these islands in the 7th and 8th and very early 9th centuries. And they come out of a whole tradition of reading scripture, which is already set out in the New Testament text, but was enormously developed by the fathers of the church, especially Origen and the great Latin fathers, Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome and Gregory. And when these fathers looked at um, the New Testament, looked at the Gospels, one of the things which had particularly focused their attention was the very number of them, the fact that there were four of them. And a good deal of early commentaries on the Gospels is really about this apparent problem, the apparent discrepancies which occur if you look at those four Gospel writers. And the early Christian commentators tried to reconcile not simply the literal texts of the four, but to show that, spiritually understood, their very distinctive four accounts were, in fact, in harmony, and that they reflected a single truth. Liber generationis Jesu Christi, fili David, fili Abraham. Abraham genuit Isaac, Isaac autum genuit Jacob, Absolutely gorgeous. There's a degree of, of sort of maturity, of confidence, of it's the pen that does the work. Of a sort of rotundity about the letter forms that means that they rest easily on the page. It's the pen that does the work. You just push it around. Awesome. Fascinating. Very close, uh, highly detailed work, which um, often makes us wonder how it was done. In many people's minds, it would rank as the greatest, or certainly one of the greatest manuscripts in the whole Western tradition. Every page has some kind of decoration on it. Fantastically detailed and beautifully ornate script. We marvel at how they managed to, to do the work at all. It's a, it's a gestural medium. Handwriting is a gestural thing. It's beautiful. A line which changes speed changes its expression. Um, more pressure will change the quality of the line. It's really incredible. It's just one of the, the typical legendary things. The Book of Kells is a lavishly decorated copy in Latin of the Four Gospels of the Life of Christ. Excuse me. There's such a degree of perfection about the form. It really is the ultimate in achievement. I think the Book of Kells is one of the greatest works of art of any period of all time. Next, please. The pen turnings are unbelievable. Even the lettering, uh, just the smoothness of the internal spaces. Um, so the craftsmanship of the Book of Kells is exquisite. It's hard to understand really just how exquisite it is. 
Well, the Celt script is uh, what we call Irish script or insular script, the type of writing practiced in Ireland and England in the early Middle Ages, up to the time of Celts, around 800, let's say. The script appears for the first time in manuscript form around 600. That's the farthest back we can go. But even by 600, you can see that the script is already fully developed, by which I mean that it's already distinctive, it's different, it looks Irish, and it's recognizably Irish in its particular features. Celt is really just a more sophisticated, a more refined version of the script that's already there 200 years before. If you want to write a beautiful script like that, you have to have a certain flow in your hand. There has to be a certain rhythm in it. It cannot be too slow. Uh, it would come from practice and from expertise. It would be like an artist with his brush strokes. Um, similarly, with a scribe of the, of the top rank, the pen moves across the page. The ink is uniform. The arches of the letters, the bowls of the round letters, there's a beautiful rhythm, consistency. They're not all the same, but there's a, there is a similarity and a, an utter competence in that. Excuse me, can I ask you, why have you come to see the Book of Kells? Because it's very famous and because it's very famous. And it's really famous in the US. What I find most interesting about the book is, is its uh, structure. It's a, it's a fascinating manuscript codicologically. I, I like the, uh, the uncertainty of it. This is one of the great, uh, the great mysteries of the way that the book was made, that, that we don't really know very much in detail at all about the sequence of the work. The Book of Kells is often spoken of as a tour de force, and, and it is a, a great tour de force artistically, but it's, um, it's a sprawling and a haphazard one, and it's very erratic internally. It, it tends to be spoken of as a unity, but internally it's not a unity at all. Really cool. Just magnificent. It's quite a nod manuscript. It's slightly scrappy. The vellum that they use is a very uneven gauge and quality. It's not always the best parts of the skin that they use. The skin colour is very, very variable. And uh, this has made me think that the skin wasn't all from the one place at the one time, that it might have come from... Uh, from different uh, houses in the Columban community. It might alternatively have been um, saved over quite a long period to be used for some uh, particular purpose. And uh, the large number of mistakes in the text are um, not consistent with the practice in other, other great gospel books. An immense light opening up out of the heavens followed by a chorus of angels singing. Excuse me, why have you come to see the Book of Kells? Augustine and other church fathers, um, in trying to demonstrate that the four Gospels were in harmony with each other,
took various shorthand images and one of the favourite demonstrations was to look at the different accounts of Christ's genealogy. Uh, this is a list of the ancestors of Joseph, the betrothed of Mary, um, and therefore she legally took on his descent. And these two lists of ancestors are treated very differently. For example, in Matthew's Gospel, you have 42 of them listed within three epochs, and you begin with Abraham and then work forward in history, Abraham begat Isaac. If you look at um, St Luke's account, there are 77 generations recorded and you start with Joseph and you go back, he was the son of so-and-so, and you work all the way back beyond Abraham, you go right back to Adam, who was the son of God. So there are major differences in the size and the direction of the genealogy in the very names and even some conflicts in the chronological period which both of these lists cover. Furthermore, they occur at different parts of the Gospel. In Matthew, it's what opens the entire Gospel. In Luke, it occurs um, uh, at the time of the baptism of Christ. So here are extreme case scenarios, if you like, of two Gospel texts, each claiming to be the, the inspired word of God, apparently not even able to agree on listing who Christ's earthly ancestors were. And it became a sort of purple passage for commentators to say that these Hebrew names are rather like flags sticking up in the literal text, and they signify that something very important is being said. It's like the images that are used are like the husk around the kernel of a nut or a fruit, that you have to penetrate to the centre, you have to lift the veil, you have to go beneath the surface of the text to understand what God is saying now. And in short, one of the things that, 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 that is suggested is that Matthew, for example, in taking his descent through David's son Solomon, his royal successor, is particularly emphasising the royal aspect of Christ's um, lineage and of his person. Whereas um, St Luke, although aware that Christ comes of the house of David, takes the descent particularly through David's priestly son, Nathan, and so you have a royal and a priestly genealogy, quite compatible and reflecting different aspects of Christ. And in the Book of Kells, you find that after the concordances, the canon tables, the two genealogies are the longest decorated sequences in the book. So they, I think, were intended to be high points of it. And this immediately is very strange and alien for us because lists of who begat who are really rather tedious, and the modern eye slips over them. But we must try and think of how genealogies were understood, not simply in the biblical culture in which they were written, but in the insular culture in which they were read. Because we're thinking of a barbarian, non-Roman, tribal society in which genealogies were hugely important, not simply for telling you people's biological descent, but for making statements of who people were and what claims they had, whether royal or priestly or whatever. Initium Evangelii Jesu Christi Filii Dei. Sicut scriptum est in Isaia Propheta, ecemito angelum neum antepacium tuam, qui preparabit viam tuam. Vox tamantis in deserto. Who made the book? The scribes. 
The Book of Kells was written by four main scribes in a formal style of script known as Insula Magiscule. Scribe A, who copied St. John's Gospel, was conservative and sober, generally leaving the decoration of his pages to others. Scribe B, who enjoyed using coloured inks and calligraphic flourishes, was responsible for finishing certain sections and pages. Scribes C and D copied the bulk of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. In many cases, the relationship between scribe and artist was so close as to indicate that they were one and the same. While the decorated initials seldom illustrate the text directly, they tend to draw attention to significant passages. Decorative display script, some of it difficult to read, was used on the opening pages of the Gospels. Your average, ordinary, everyday scribe transcribing your average, ordinary, everyday liturgical book or biblical commentary or Latin grammar or something, while he is well trained and while he has a good practiced hand, would not necessarily be regarded as somebody super or above the rest of the community. He has a talent and the talent is nurtured and that's fine. But to a certain extent there is an element in which a good scribe is actually stupid. Because what you want, what you demand ultimately of a good scribe, what you want from a good scribe is somebody who will do what he is told, who will copy what is there in front of him and do so without tinkering with the text. So you want somebody who's relatively dull, who can do the work and can do exactly what is in front of him, who can mirror the original from which he is copying. Now, that's not the same as the calligrapher, as the calligraphic scribe. That's somebody else. And there is a reference, one of the very few references we have, there's a reference to an Irish calligrapher, I suppose we would call him, a man called Ulton, who is referred to, interestingly enough, in an early English text, a Latin poem that comes from the north of England in the early 9th century, describing an Irishman who was working in Northumbria in the early 8th century, Ulton. And it said that he could ornament pages with fair marking and he could do so like nobody else in his time. So clearly his contemporaries and the man who wrote the poem viewed his work as something above the ordinary, quite exceptional. And we think of him in terms of somebody who would produce a manuscript like the Book of Kells. And indeed, the author of that poem says that after his death, his right hand, Alton's right hand, was kept as a relic and was produced every so often for its magical properties, so to speak. So they did appreciate the difference between a calligrapher on the one hand and a scribe, an ordinary menial scribe. And they appreciated that somebody who could produce a calligraphic specimen of the kind of Kells was, was somebody touched by God. The Chiro page is the most celebrated image in the Book of Kells. The words Christi, Atum, Generat, Generatio open the narrative of Matthew's Gospel with the name of Christ in its abbreviated Greek form. Chiro, occupying the whole height of the page. The chi forms a cross shape. The page is filled with the visual reminders of the Eucharist sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ. The element of error is represented by two angels, messengers of God, holding gospel books. The element of earth is represented by two mice or rats holding a Eucharist under the close scrutiny of two cats with two mice on their backs. This little vignette. There is the assumption that different calligraphers wrote different parts of the script of the Book of Kells. Um, that, that may be, um, but nobody really knows. Um, but all of those styles 
are very much the same in many respects while they have differences. It's possible that the differences could just come from uh, the same scribe writing a few years later or got out of bed the different side. You know, that's possible as well. But um, whatever about it, in the Book of Kells, they all harmonize. This little vignette may also portray the medieval dilemma of a mouse eating a com communion host, thus consuming the body of Christ. The third element of water is represented by the otter with the fish in its mouth. The fish is an ancient symbol of Christ and of new converts swimming in the waters of baptism. An intricate filigree of men and peacocks surrounds a lozenge representing the lo logos or word of God. The peacock symbolized the incorruptibility of Christ because of the ancient belief that its flesh did not putrefy. Two butterflies, top left, hold a chrysalis, symbolizing rebirth and the resurrection of Christ. There is a feeling, for example, that the very best scribes are very young. So it's not at all impossible to say that the scribes of the Book of Kells would have been youngsters. It seems odd for, for, our, for our sort of perspective that somebody producing something on that scale of, of that degree of sophistication could be anything other than adult, but that doesn't necessarily follow. If they're doing what they're told, if they're doing what they're trained to do, and they're obviously trained very effectively, they can mimic the master scribe to the point where we can't distinguish. Um, if they have been trained properly, then they can do that at a relatively young age. So it's not impossible that a good scribe, a good calligrapher, might not actually understand what he's doing, literally. An angel, bottom left, holds two flowering rods. The blonde head turns sideways, at the center of the, the row may be that of Christ himself. The row outlined, outlined is reminiscent of the 8th century Irish Cozier terminal found at Helgo Icaro in Sweden. In the panel to the right of Christ's head, two pairs of confronting men pull each other's beards. The writing of that particular script is a very uh, deliberate and slow process. It's not a fast script like some of some other scripts can be written much faster. Um, but I think as you're writing that, I think you still have to be fully engaged with the act of writing. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that they were consciously trying to interpret the text as they wrote it. In some ways, that's something that, that could, have been, could be attempted in a modern sense with faster scripts. Um, but I don't know, I, th I, I suggest one of, the, one of the great things in the Book of Kells is the feeling of self-presence in every word, in every letter, and from page to page. And um, I think in, in, in that sense, possibly the act of writing could be seen as a meditative process. Um, but I don't think it's, it's connected with directly thinking of the actual meaning of the words as they change in the story of the Gospels. That could come afterwards or beforehand, but I think during your, your, your whole body and mind and your whole being is engaged with the, with the moment of writing. This is something which modern calligraphers are always wrestling with. They feel it's their art is to give a measure of interpretation to a text by the way you write it, by the way you present it. Say if you have a beautiful poem or something. You don't change any of the line structure, you don't leave out a comma, you leave nothing out. But somehow, by the way you write it, you try to bring a dimension of meaning to it. I think that 
in some of the pages in the Book of Kells, they, the, the scribes were moving to, towards this. Oh, my goodness. My hand is weary with writing. My sharp quill is not steady. My slender beaked pen just forth, juts forth. A black draw of shining dark blue ink. A stream of the wisdom of blessed God springs from my fair, brown, shapely hand. On the page, it squirts its drought of ink of the green-skinned holy. My, or holly, my little dripping pen travels across the plain of shining books without ceasing for the wealth of the great. Hence, whence my hand is weary from writing. You learn different strokes and different sort of components, and you, you can assemble these uh, to make the, the, le- the, wor- the letters and then to make the words. You learn the alphabet in about five sections, and you wouldn't learn it by ABC. You'd learn it with the two key letters of the alphabet would be I and O. And if you can make an I and an O, then you can make at least one-third of the letters of the alphabet. Because um, the I is straightforward enough. The O in, in, in the manuscript hand is made in two parts, first the left side and then the right side. It's not made in one continuous round. And that, that, that's a very important thing. So you, you learn this method of, of making, and we know that that's the way they used to make it too because there are references, famous reference to um, one, one saint who was very obedient. It said that when he would hear the bell, he would leave an O half formed, which makes no sense except to a calligrapher who understands that in the formal script, an O was made first the left side and the right side. And then if you can make an O, then if you make the left side, then you go back up to the top and then you stop. Halfway down, you get a C. And then if you bring a little stroke back in, you get an E. So if you can make O, you can make also C and D. Um, Initially, for me, I think things come from uh, an unconscious impulse. Um, But as I try to understand them more, it's bringing them to a rational level of understanding Um, I think um, calligraphy as any art form has an element of structure and understanding Um, but ultimately the dynamics come from your own inner self they're individual to you and um, you don't need to be thinking of them but um, uh, at the same time the understanding is still there it shows very easily. For me, part of the gestures of, and the dynamics of writing in a modern expressive sense are using quite a lot of vigour and speed, so there's no time to be thinking about it, there's no time to be planning it, um, but at the same time you have to know it. You know it, you, you start by learning it in your head, but when you get to know it, it's no longer in your head. So in that sense, you're free, it's freedom. It's inside you, but um, and it comes out by itself. And calligraphy becomes much more complex than just tracing forms. It has to do with a certain speed, an acceleration of speed here, a slowing down there, a quick twist of the pen there, a flick there, a splash there. The Book of Kells appears to have been the work of three major artists. Now that is just to explain one particular example. I suppose another very common one would be the opening lines of each of the four Gospels. And we have to think that when 
uh, catechumens came to baptism and received the secret knowledge of the church, they received the books as revealed wisdom, they were symbolically handed to the catechumens and the opening lines of these four Gospels were read to them. And the deacon gave a short homily explaining how those opening lines symbolically, we might think very enigmatically, encapsulated the particular vision, the particular witness of that individual gospel writer. And that the opening lines also contained the key to explaining why that writer was ascribed the particular winged beast symbol that he had. Now, by these symbols, I mean the, the four creatures, the, the creature with the head of a man, the one with the head of a lion, the one like an ox, and the one like an eagle. Now, if you read the literature, you'll see that the four together present a composite picture of Christ. So that, for example, St Matthew's um, figure, the, the, the beast, the winged beast with the face of the man, is seen as representing Christ's humanity and particularly recalling his incarnation. Mark is assigned the, uh, the lion and he is seen as particularly describing the um, resurrection of Christ and his royal kingship. Luke is given the ox or the, um, the calf and he is seen as the evangelist who, who is bringing out particularly the facet of Christ's priesthood and is revealing something of his passion. And St John's creature, the eagle, relates to Christ's divinity and his ascension. And in the insular gospel books where they were produced in a society which did not have great stone basilicas and huge mosaic decorations, a lot of that was concentrated within the architecture, as it were, of the gospel books. So the, 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 the book effectively opens with this because the, the, the very first pages of Kells are missing. And then at the beginning of each of the constituent texts, the four Gospels, you have a great page of the, um, the four evangelist symbols, as I've just described. The one for Luke is actually missing, but I think it's reasonable to assume one wants um, what, what was in position there. Puniam quidem multiconati sunt ordinare narrationem quae nobis complete sunt verum, sicut tradiderum nobis qui ab initio ipsi viderunt et ministri fuerunt verbi. Visum est et mihi, ad secuto a principio omnia, diligenter ex ordine tibi scribere optime teofere, ut cognoscas eorum verborum de quibus eruditus es firmitatum. I think what the monks were doing originally when they made this book was uh, producing something for the glory of their own house. And uh, I, I often um, think that, that all the big monasteries in Ireland have something similar. I don't think the book was as, um, as remarkable in its day as we find it now. I, I think there have been many, many losses. And, and the historical evidence we have for that, I think, is this often quoted 
uh, comment of Geraldus Cambrensis about the, uh, the wonderful gospel book that he saw down in Kildare. We, um, we don't know anything about that book now other than what uh, Geraldus told us. And it's a mistake to think that he, had, he got mixed up with the Book of Kells. I think that all the big monasteries, Clonmacnoise, Kildare, Kells, uh, Durrow, of course, had, uh, had a very splendid gospel book from 100 years before Kells. I think they all had something which, uh, which not only glorified God, of course, but also um, glorified their, uh, their own establishment. So what exactly is the Book of Kells? It's a beautifully decorated manuscript. There is a design for gospel books uh, that's, that's, that was established in late antiquity and more or less, I presume, came to Ireland. You had this idea of, of um, in the design and layout of producing a gospel book. Well, it was in four parts because of the four gospels. There was a tradition of showing a representation of the evangelist or the evangelist symbol. Then there was a, a tradition of decorating the opening words of each gospel. And then sometimes they, like in the Book of Durrow, there were included these carpet pages, which are sort of pages of abstract decoration. So with each gospel, you'd have at least uh, three decorated pages that given you 12 altogether. Then, of course, there were other things like the preliminaries, um, which gave you the uh, an attempt at paralleling the the various uh, incidents in the gospel which occur in more than one gospel by little numbers and so on telling you where these uh, occur and these canon tables as they're called were often uh, presented in beautiful beautifully drawn arches as part of the preliminaries of, of the gospels so all this went into the actual planning of the book however the beginning of the 9th century was also the beginning of the Viking invasions, your ancestors, of course. And uh, the Vikings attacked Iona around the year 806, and uh, over 100 monks were killed at this time. So it was too dangerous to remain in Iona. The monks left Iona, came to Ireland, and they settled in a place called Kells County Meath. Then you had to get the raw materials together. And the principal material, of course, was the, the, uh, the vellum, which was uh, a, ca a calf skins. And there's, there would have required more than 160, maybe 170 fine calf skins. Now, unless these were very good quality, which they were in cows, they, 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 they wouldn't have been used. Uh, if there was any defect in them or any defect in the animal that would show up in the skin and consequently only the finest were kept for uh, manuscript purposes. Cattle was were very important in, in, uh, in Celtic Ireland and in early Ireland, a unit of currency as we know and they, they must have had huge herds of cattle and then the calves would have been uh, slaughtered very often and many calves would have been slaughtered in the autumn because they wouldn't have enough feed for them for the winter time. But anyway, between one thing and another, they would have had a, a large store of very well-prepared skins ready for, for the use uh, in book production, the finest of which they kept for the finest manuscript, Book of Kells. Books like this served, uh, served many purposes. They, uh, they could be displayed on, on particular occasions, and there's been a lot of work recently suggesting that they were used for, that the Book of Kells in particular was used in, uh, in Easter ceremonies 
so that it would have been displayed around the church and, and visible uh, from a distance to anyone who was uh, in the congregation. But it's the broad sweep of the decoration that most people would have seen displayed to them. So it stays in Kells right through the Reformation until the time of Cromwell, and the church authorities were nervous about the invading troops and decided to send the book uh, to Dublin for safekeeping. And eventually, with the restoration of Charles II on the throne, the Book of Kells, along with another Christian manuscript, the Book of Durham, was handed over to Trinity College for its remains. Even today, many calligraphers value it for you can get very sharp, fine, crisp lines on, on finely prepared vellum. And even the, pre- the preparation of the vellum by the scribe is another aspect of the craftsmanship involved. It has to be sandpapered down finely and pumiced and pounced. Tender would have um, cut the skins to size and then the next thing would have been ruling them. And the ruling is interesting because it all goes back to the, the size of the nib, the size of the pen, the width of the nib. Because the, the width of the nib determines the height of the letter. The height of the letter determines the, the, the lines, the ruling lines, because they're ruled... Uh, the heights of the letters as well. So that brought the uniformity into the script. So if you like, for each line of text, there's a double line of ruling. And you, were, you, you started on the top line and you drew your letter I, for example, from the top down to the bottom line. And so you worked always within two lines, kept keeping it uniform. And the number of lines to the page gives you a grid for the page. And the grid is what the artists had to work within as well. So that when you open the double spread, the size of the, say, the illustration of the evangelist on one page is exactly the same area as the text on the facing page. And then you could start uh, the writing. The sensuality of touch. Um, uh, all of these things can, can, can be brought to bear on the nature of the knowledge that you are working on skin. In many cases, it's actually the skin of a stillborn calf, which has a poignancy when, when you understand that. And um, for me, the material of vellum is not just a physical thing that's nice to write on if it's prepared well. It's, it's knowing that um, this, is, this is skin. Uh, so if you'd like to follow me this way. You sharpened up your quills because the um, the writing was done with the, the quills of, of uh, swans and geese. And the quill is the, the perfect writing instrument. It's uh, completely weightless, shaped to fit your hand, um, and made out of almost the same material as your uh, fingernail. So it's like writing with your finger. And of course you can cut it to whatever shape or you want. When you write with, with a quill on vellum, it's, it's a perfect match in materials. Now, the monks used two main types of ink. The black carbon ink, which you've already met. This is usually soot, gum and water. And then this ready brown ink, which is made from uh, crushed oak apples, uh, gum and water. They used red lead, white lead, chalk. This lovely yellow colour isn't gold, it's arsenic and sulphur. Um, this purple colour here is a Mediterranean plant. This other bright red colour is a little beetle they crush. 
the lovely green colour verdigris you get when you dip copper into vinegar. They also used um, this lovely bright blue colour. This is in fact the most precious colour used in the Book of Kells. You get this bright blue colour by crushing the stones of um, lapis lazuli. Then uh, they would have to prepare their ink. In, in that connection too, it's worth noting that all the pigments were preserved as powder and they were made into paint by mixing them with water and the binding medium. So they'd have the ink, uh, the pens, the ruled up pages and all they had to do was get on with it. Kells means status, it means importance, it means connections, it means influence, it means access to resources, it means all of those things together as well as over and above the purely spiritual and, and Christian element in the content. There are ten canon tables. In nine of these tables, they would compare what any four Gospels have in common, what any three Gospels have in common, and then they would compare what any two Gospels have in common. And then table ten lists what is distinctive to each of the four Gospels. So you get a complete concordance. In the Book of Kells, the canon tables are one of the most splendid sequences, decorative sequences, in the entire book. It goes on for pages. It's an absolute virtuoso performance. But in the margins of the text, there are no numerals, so for practical purposes, it is useless. But it is a wonderful symbol of the harmony of the Gospels. And when you look closely under the main arch on each page, or on several of the pages, you will find the four symbolic beasts I've just been describing. And on a page describing the first canon table, which compares what all four have in common, you see all four creatures, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John's creatures, but they are grouped together in an interesting way. They are put, for example, in pairs, two pairs facing each other. And when you start to look at their limbs and their wings, you find that they are interwoven. And various scholars have noticed that in some pages, which are comparing, say, any three or two uh, of, of, the, of the gospel books, um, you would expect to find three creatures only at the top of the page. But when you look closely, you'll find that one of the creatures may well have some of the attributes of the missing gospel. So, for instance, there's a page which shows Matthew's man, Mark's lion and Luke's calf. But when you look at the legs of Luke's calf, you find that rather disconcertingly, there is simply a pair of claws, the claws belonging to John's eagle, suggesting perhaps that these three, although they have passages which are close to each other and a passage which is not directly verbally found in John, they are nevertheless in harmony with the spirit of John's gospel. In principio erat verbum, et verbum erat apodeum, et Deus erat verbum. Are you busy here today? We were, we were in the morning. It's kind of rather quiet. And calligraphy is rhythm. You just really don't know how much people know or don't know. Some are disappointed that it's in Latin. 
some people think then that there are two books of Kells because there are two volumes in size. And they got confused as one book, two books, or four. You know, because it's split into four. Um, the odd person is disappointed that they thought it was something different. In what sense, I don't know. You don't get involved. Um, but most people are very, very impressed. What, what strikes me is, is um, the use they made of what was available in those days. It was bad enough accepting a new religion, but even in a new language in the 5th century. And yet within 200 years they're producing books in Latin. So they, they must have required grammars and all sorts of things to teach students Latin grammar. Grammars Mass was in Latin until when? 1962, 63. Everything was in Latin. So, do you find it easy to read the book? It's hard to read the writing. It's hard to, it's hard to separate words. Some words are glued together. Like, see that one there? It's F on top. F A. But this is O. Omnes. Or omnes. But if you read that, Faclius est autum calum et terras. What else? Presterire quam delege. Which is delege is two words, really. It's de lege, of the law. So it is easier uh, for heaven and earth to pass away than from the law, unum, unum, apicem, caetere, than for one point of the law to pass away. But I mean, if you're trying to read the book and you come across things like that, which is one word, and suddenly you find out you've got to split it, and that happens quite often. You get abbreviations, you might get endings, little letters left out even. It is hard to read. Calligraphy is a pattern of repetition, a pattern of downstrokes, upstrokes, curved strokes, the pattern of spaces, the black and the white, uh, the thick and the thin, uh, the quality of the line. All of these things in writing are repeated, and the interval of repetition and these rhythmic aspects ca can become um, very powerful. You were a monk at one stage. Yes. Mm -hmm. Cistercian. You know, it's a certain way of rhythmic way of writing, and it's, it's just there's a way for doing it, and it's always been that way. Do you feel a connection to these guys? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, direct line. Yes, I would. I missed the divine office. I miss the, the, the whole rule, the, 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 whole, the whole scene. Um, silence. I, li I, like, I like the silence. I like to be able to withdraw and just do my own thinking. Um, you know, 
Shop to three, tear a rag. Hello. 73, you're wanted in the shop. All right, send me the electricity man. I'm on the third side. 